0: Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track, through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe.
1: And I'm Ryan. Congratulations, you have found the world's finest podcast for Christmas episodes that have nothing to do with Christmas. We're going to start this episode off with a little bit of trivia. All right, I'm going to start us off. I've got the audio trivia. It's just your uh, standard fare. See if you can give me the artist, the song, and there is a theme that holds them all together. You ready?
0: I sure am. Boy, howdy. (laughs) Track
1: one.
2: Oh, where is and be the Track 2 Track three.
1: Here comes Santa Claus, here, here comes, comes Santa Claus, right
3: down Santa Claus Lane. Here come round when the time's ween out when it's Christmas morning. Track four,
2: on you and glorious <laughs> morning. Four,
1: on your knees. Track five.
2: Come down, swaddling the of
1: evil. track 6
4: i'll be home for christmas. and you track 7 the very merriest of christmases and the happiest of new years and thank you so very much for letting us spend this christmas with you
1: track 8
2: Bells chime wherever we roam.
4: So try a Noel.
2: Finish, not for a to you.
1: I put a load of clues in there. I put a uh, a Santa's bag of clues in there for you.
0: I feel pretty good about a lot of the artists and a lot of the songs, but I cannot figure out what the theme is. Are you gonna give everybody a little holiday present and give us a hint them.
1: okay <laughs>
4: okay Fair enough. okay hold on
1: let me uh let me see what's what's hiding there behind the tree. Oh it's a clue, okay. My clue is there are eight tracks, and that was on purpose okay Merry Christmas, everybody. that was a big lump of coal for me. <laughs> All right, we will... Oh, oh, wait, hey, wait, Joe, wait. I think I see something else. What's behind your tree over there? I think it's another clue. What might that be? And the other clue is it has to do with the artist. So it has to do with the artist. And think about there's eight tracks, and that was on purpose. There you go.
0: We will play those again at the end of the show, and the answers will follow that. Hopefully I'll be able to think of some kind of theme. Yeah, think of something. You don't want to look like a like an idiot on your own podcast. It's your podcast. <laughs> I'm in the I'm in the sidecar. <laughs> Wait, I thought I was in the sidecar. <laughs> <laughs> we're both in sidecars. <laughs> That's why it
1: never goes anywhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, I'm going to go ahead and start the next round of trivia that is non-audio. Okay. One thing I noticed while we were kind of going through The holiday show and the theme that we have for this show, which isn't really holiday related, is there have been a lot of celebrities that have released Christmas albums. Oh, boy. So, what I'm going to do is I have four Christmas albums. I'm going to name a song, and you tell me which one of these four albums it came from. Okay. The first album is Smash Mouth, Gift of Rock. The second album is Snoop Dogg, Christmas in the Doghouse. Okay. The third album is Regis Philbin, the Regis Philbin Christmas album. R.I.P. And the fourth album is Afro Man, a Colt 45 Christmas. Oh,
1: boy. Okay. So you're going to name me the song. I just have to tell you which of those four the song appeared on.
0: Exactly. Okay. Here we go. I'll start off with Landy and My Eggnog. Landy in My Eggnog. Can you spell Landy? L-A-N-D-Y.
1: I'm going to say that's uh, Afro Man. It
0: is Snoop Dogg. Oh, dang. Okay. The next one is going to be... Is that you, Santa Claus?
1: Hmm. I think Regis Philbin would do a perfectly terrible version of that, so I'm going to say Regis Philbin.
0: He would, but Smashmouth Mouth would also oh. do an equally <laughs> terrible version of it. I
1: think I just didn't want to imagine what that would sound like in my head,
0: but... All right, the next one. My Little Mama Trippin' on Christmas. Yeah, I'll go Afro Man again. It's Snoop Dogg. Oh, jeez. Okay, okay. The next one is Deck My Balls. <laughs> Regis. It's Regis Philpin.
2: Yes.
0: (laughs) It is Afro Man. Ah, gosh, come on. Nice try. Uh,
1: I'm not doing very good on this. Snoopy's Christmas. (sighs) Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say Snoop Dogg.
0: Smash Mouth again. Gosh. But you're forgetting all about them.
1: Yep. It's like I will never say their name. Okay, go ahead.
0: The next one is... Twelve J's of Christmas. <laughs> it's
1: gotta be Snoop or Afro Man, you would you would think.
0: Are you profiling?
1: <laughs> I would just—they're uh, more vocal about their their feelings about cannabis. I'll say Snoop again, Snoop Dogg.
0: Afro Man. Oh man,
1: Marshmallow World. <sighs> it's a standard.
0: Afro Man. Regis Philbin. Oh man horrible at this okay the next one is a pimp's christmas song a pimp's christmas song
5: all right let's go snoop you are correct
0: yes very good very good come on christmas christmas come on that's probably smash mouth it is smash mouth excellent that sounds like their their style of songwriting the next one is... A gift that keeps on giving. Might be the hardest one. I'm going to Regis. It is Snoop Dogg. Oh, man. You pick so many Snoop Dogg ones. The next one is... Let her blow. It's <laughs> yeah, a Christmas classic. Let's go Afro Man. And you are correct. Yes. Whew. All right, we're going to go with... Don't Believe in Christmas. Regis. Smash Mouth. Okay. We've got two more. All right. Oh, Chronic Tree. Uh, Snoop. Afro Man. Uh, okay. And the last one. Police Blow My Wad. <laughs> How does that
1: relate to Christmas? Uh, uh let's go, uh, let's go Smashmouth.
0: Mouth. It is Afro Man. Oh. Uh. That Afro man. I really thought you were going to get that one. Yeah, I should have probably. That's my trivia. That's pretty good. Yeah, I know you didn't do very well, but it was. I, I thought some of those were kind of funny. Yeah,
1: they're great. I, I'm kind of curious to see where some of those songs go. Not curious enough to spend any time seeking them out, but just a passing curiosity. In fact, I think it's gone. Yep, yep
0: gone, gone. Let's move on quickly. All right. Well, I think then it is time for turntable talk.
2: Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they say saying.
1: Only the echoes of my mind. It is that time of the year again, where we get pretty sick of hearing about Christmas. For this, unbelievably, our fourth Christmas episode, we are going to carry on the tradition of taking episode to talk about some of the weirder, smaller stories that we've wanted to cover, but wouldn't fit into a full-length turntable talk. A veritable cornucopia of record oddities. So sit back and get ready to have your stocking stuffed with some fascinating tales of rock star mishaps and vinyl vanities. Stoke your fire, spike your eggnog, and don your winter's cap because you're about to be visited by the ghost of music history's past.
0: Alright everybody, pay attention to this. in You
5: the cold maids, say one in
2: Alright!
0: What did you just hear? What did the singer say? What did he mean? What was the mood? the tone? What language was it in? Does it even matter? Most importantly, what does what you heard say about you? When Hermann Rorschach was just a kid, he became enthralled with a book that contained a series of poems, each inspired by a fantastical inkplot. The symmetry and randomness of the images haunted the young Swiss boy, beginning a lifelong obsession with klexography. Eventually, Rorschach found himself able to combine his interests in art and science while working at a mental institution. He would show ink blots to schoolchildren and analyze their results, looking for patterns in their identifications, which could then be attributed to personality, emotional functioning, and distortion in thought process. Rorschach's projective test was a psychometric evaluation of the pareidolia, human's tendency to assign meaningful patterns to random or natural stimuli. Pareidolia comes up time and time again in music, whether it's kids hearing recipes for demonic cupcakes in records played backwards or identifying a steady heartbeat in the white noise waves of Sun O records. Pries and Colin, a and Cusol, is a sonic Rorschach test.
1: Adriano Celentano makes a strong case for being the single individual to bring rock and roll to Italy. After falling in love with the sounds of Elvis, he started recording rock songs in the late 50s, as well as starring in films, everything from musicals to Fellini. In fact, he played a rock and roll singer in 1960's La Dolce Vita. Over the course of his career, which is still going on by the way, He released over 40 records and has stayed commercially and critically relevant for decades in Italy. But it was a throwaway 1972 single that has brought him some international acclaim. As a response to the frustration with the inability to communicate that Celentino sometimes experienced, and as an homage to the American rock music that he loved so much, he recorded a song that was mimicry of how English singing sounded to him. He spontaneously created a bunch of lyrics that he thought could pass as American-sounding and sang them with a strange intensity and believability. Of course, phonetic tomfoolery and the use of nonsense singing has long traditions and has popped up in everything from the Bible to Dante and Lewis Carroll to Charlie Chaplin. The song was not a novelty, but a genuine exploration of language barriers. In fact, he would later state that the idiosyncratic title of the song should be translated as Universal Love. He explained that he loved American slang and that it was so much easier to sing than Italian, early in his career when he was simply trying to copy his American counterpoints. He loved how he could pick up on the emphasized catchphrases like, all right, or I'm ready. So he created an aggressive, dancey looped beat and started spewing the unintelligible gibberish somewhat reminiscent of Elvis and Bob Dylan. Adriano also had his wife, and actress turned singer, Claudia Mori. Hop on the record to sing and play harmonica. On its original release in 1972, the single failed to make
0: any impact at all. Undeterred, Celentano believed in the song and decided to play it live on a couple television variety shows in 1974. The video that truly broke it open was a comedy sketch performance on Formula Due in which he portrays a pelvic-thrusting trench coat sporting teacher blathering nonsense lyrics at a class full of voluptuous co-eds infatuated with the Gumby-esque machinations of their instructor. As a side note, Celentano's nickname is Il Morligiato, or the Flexible One, that he earned for his smooth, gyrating dance moves. He moved as if he had young Elvis' hips and old Elvis' pill addiction. My favorite part of the video is the random part where his wife, one of the students, pops up from her desk at one point to blast some harmonica. The video exposure did the trick, and it shot all the way to number one in Italy, France, Belgium, Netherlands, and Germany. It even briefly charted in the U.S. and was played in northern soul clubs in the U.K., The song fell off the radar, though there were occasional DJs who would remix it. Eventually, the website Boing Boing posted the videos and the internet did what the internet does. In this revival, people started trying to make sense of what was being said, causing delight, frustration, mental fatigue, and a whole slew of hilarious, misunderstood lyrics. The song has been characterized ex post facto as early examples of all sorts of musical trends like Europop, funk, house and even rap. Celentano has no interest in claiming any of this. He just wants you to hear what you hear and this is what I hear We've been seeing the children now holding and saying that hooray maybe if the color boss died (laughs) I mean, it's gotta be right Right? Yeah, that's what I hear
1: Artistic expression of the USSR under Leonid Brezhnev was non-existent. While America's Brezhnev, Ed Sullivan, was forbidding lyrics being performed by The Doors and Bob Dylan and he refused to show an untruncated Elvis Presley. The state-controlled government in the Soviet Union had a stranglehold on nearly all publicly performed music. This made creativity difficult. Just ask Russian singer Edward Hill. A well-known Soviet crooner, Hill was a hit machine during the height of the Cold War, but the lyrics of songs he was asked to sing would always need to be submitted to the state and were generally removed for being grossly obscene. Consider his performance of the song, I am very glad, as I'm finally returning back home, for example, the song was about a lonesome cowboy named John who was returning home after being away a long time, and his wife Mary, who waited patiently at home, knitting a single sock. Obviously, the state deemed the filthy song filthy and far too erotic. Who is John? they asked, who is Mary? They demanded one sock they giggled. Clearly the words needed to be removed. All of this, of course, happened on the day Hill entered the studio to record it. Had Hill been an actual artist with integrity, he might have been filled with ire, but the famed commie crooner instead happily and easily improvised nonsensical words in the place of the heresy. After all, he certainly wouldn't have written such vile. Single sock, indeed.
0: After laying down his Scott Walker-esque baritone in the studio, Hill went on tour for his state-approved album. Being a puppet of the state had its privileges, like being able to leave Russia once in a while with handlers in tow. While in Sweden, for a television performance in 1976, a spell took place on the world that wouldn't be revealed for another 34 years. As his most recent hit began to play, Hill entered the stage to the delight of the attentive Swedes. There are rumors that a young, hunky, impressionable Dolph Lundgren was in the audience that day, but it is a rumor that I am starting right now. Hill was dressed to the nines, garnished with his famous Honey Dijon power tie. Microphones were never needed on stages, Hill crossed, as the Soviet government would never take a chance and have their singers vocalize any obscene sentiments. The smile on Hill's face was as frozen as the shellacked hair on his head. As the record played to the crowd, the terminally joyful singer tried with all his might to mouth the words perfectly. The song that played to the crowd sounded like this. Though it was a resounding hit behind the Iron Curtain, and though Hill was an inspiration to brainwash Soviet youth and a hero of state leaders, the song eventually faded from memory. Hill retired from the stage and started singing in cafes until his ultimate retirement. And then, around 2009-2010, his song mightily exploded onto the world via YouTube. Hill became a star. The humble singer, now known across the world as Mr. Trololo, was reticent to accept the adulations and demands to return to the stage. He appreciated the spectacle in silence. Though the parodies of his work stopped being funny right around the time, and but definitely before Family Guy had one, they brought a gleam to Hill's eyes. He finally felt understood and was able to leave this mortal coil with self-respect, joining his heroes in the afterlife. Stalin, Khrushchev, and one day, his pal Vladimir Putin, who wrote a touching farewell to Hill, one of the few Russian citizens he didn't have a hand in killing.
1: In the wake of the pop culture obliteration that was Star Wars in 1977, droves of not very creative minds tried various ways to rip off that movie so that they could make bank selling toys. There are TV shows like Battlestar Galactica, Jason of Star Command, and there are movies like The Last Starfighter, Battle Beyond the Stars, Space Raiders, and my personal favorite, Disney's The Black Hole. And in addition to all that, there was an oft-overlooked band that approached its stage presence with more than just a nod to the blockbuster space opera. That band was Halix. The band was formed in 1981, and it was a mix of aliens and humanoids. On bass was a seven-foot-tall albino Wookiee named Baharnoth. On keyboards was a droid in a golf cart whose fans dubbed him Mot Relum, Beethoven from Space. There was a small, acrobatic, amphibian-like creature on percussion. On lead guitar was a Han Solo character, and on drums was another humanoid. Finally, the lead singer, Laura Mumford, who is best described as a punk rock Snow White. Halix was assembled by Mike Post, the man behind such hits as the themes for The A-Team, Quantum Leap, Magnum P.I., Rockford Files, and many others. Post is mostly known, however, for creating the Law and Order sound. Had Halix been given a longer chance to coalesce, we might have never had that. And who knows, maybe Jerry Orbach would still be alive. Halix having a goofy stage present and ties to the legendary Mike Post isn't what makes their story especially interesting. Instead, it's where they played and the company behind the band's existence that makes this really fun.
0: In 1977, Disneyland unveiled Space Mountain, the park's second roller coaster. As part of the new sci-fi feel, the Tomorrowland stage, which featured daily children's shows, was renamed the Space Stage. This is a multi-billion dollar corporation, and they can't come up with a better name than Space Stage. They also opened a restaurant called the Space Place. (laughs) And an arcade called Starcade. They must have called in a Portmanteau expert at the last minute for that one. This was all planned long before Star Wars became such a hit. It seemed to be kismet, right? Disney should be fucking stoked because it matches their new theme, right? At the time, Disney didn't have the business acumen to know that Star Wars should just be purchased, not competed with. Disney simply got in line with everyone else and tried to find ways to make money off the blockbuster. Now that Disneyland had a roller coaster, which they already hoped would attract more teenagers, and a sweet new stage with the word space in its name, it was time to build the perfect space band. That's when they called in a favor with Mike Post and had him put together this can't-miss band, Halix. The band sound was somewhere between Blondie and Pat Benatar at their pop heights, and the fans loved it. They were almost too popular for performing in Disneyland. The park was apparently opposed to having people dance, which was a problem for a rock and roll show. Another small issue was the material. For some reason, Disney thought it'd be a great idea for the band to play their classic song, Jailbait, during every performance. Hey, 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 And even though the band was created as part of Disneyland Records, they were signed to Electra Asylum Records. This is probably because Disneyland Records hadn't produced any rock music albums. They released children's records and soundtracks for children's movies. The band was supposed to record and release an album, but before any of that could happen, Warner Brothers swallowed up Electra and dropped Halix.
1: Despite the crowd's love of Halix, Disney put the band on ice after one magical summer. Laura Mumford, the lead singer, was kept on contract in case Disney needed another rock band, but they deemed all the others replaceable. Sorry,
0: Baharnoth. That costume must have smelt so bad.
1: <laughs> they didn't really try that hard with him, did they? They just really made him look a lot like
0: Chewbacca. He had... Cool stage presence, though, and if anybody gets a chance, look at some of the YouTube videos. There are only a few of them performing live, and he's really surprisingly charismatic for being hidden inside of a costume. It's pretty good.
1: Did the amphibian acrobat percussionist have a name, or was he just a thing?
0: He didn't have a name, and the names that we had listed in here were actually either named by the fans— Like that, Mott Rillam, which is actually just the real guy's name, Tom Miller, backwards. Mm -hmm. And the Baharnoth was named by the guy who was in that costume. They didn't have names. Really great job planning this Disney. Yeah, it seems
1: like a missed opportunity to sell some shit. Laura uh, ended up singing on a couple other Disney releases, including Duck Dance 2 from the Mouser Size album. Classic. The band disappeared, and a record was never released. It's doubtful that any studio recordings ever happened, but no one knows for sure. The remaining band members don't remember it happening, Mike Post isn't sure one way or the other, and Laura Mumford passed away in 2011 and kept that secret with her on her journey to the stars. A documentary about the band called Live from the Space Stage, A Halix Story was released in August and is streaming on YouTube.
0: Yeah, the documentary is worth watching. It's a lot of fun. Chris CV had a tumultuous relationship with the music industry. Wholly dedicated to finding fame as a rock star, a young Seavey and his brother hitchhiked to London to do a sit-in at Apple Records to demand an audience with the Beatles. The confused label men were unable to scare off the kids and eventually relented to allow them to record a quick demo. The label wasn't interested, but apparently the Seaveys got a quick glance at Ringo. Chris Seavey began to record demo tapes at home at a furious pace, As fast as he could get them recorded and dubbed, he sent them to record companies. And just as fast, they'd reject him. At one point, he'd even include a self-addressed rejection letter with his tapes as a convenience for the label. C.V. published a book with 104 of his favorite rejection letters. Just his favorite 104. Driven by passion, C.V. simply took a DIY approach and started his own label, Raz Records, in 1974, which would be one of the earliest independent record labels. His band, the Freshies, known for pink instruments and awkwardly pleasant bedroom power pop, would eventually find fame. Well, sort of. After a decade of work, C.V. finally wrote a song that was finding inroads to mass audiences the succinctly titled I'm in love with the girl on the Manchester Virgin Megastore checkout desk.
2: In the biz You get to meet all the top people Trouble is They never seem to be The soft people Now we're on our way I'm gonna live today But there's no way that I can Cause I'm in love, in love With the girl on the Manchester Virgin the the
0: The undoubtedly catchy tune charted and had a lot of airplay, but it was stymied by a canceled Top of the Pops appearance, a postal strike, and the name of the song itself, which was really long. And second, had to be edited to remove the specific brand to become a certain Manchester megastore. The band never grasped the fame that was just outside its reach. Seavey was undeterred and looked for any way to make more fans. He turned to multimedia. An avid home filmmaker, he would spend hours making music videos that were often personalized to the fan who mail-ordered one. And then one day he was taking his money to go pay his phone bill when he passed a strange newfangled device in a shop window. The phone would soon be cut off because CV walked home with a Sinclair ZX81 home computer, which was the approximate UK equivalent to the earliest home systems like the Commodore 64 and VIC-20. He would spend the next three months teaching himself how to use the ZX and how to write programs. The Sinclair and the Commodore were essentially processing units with keyboards that had to be hooked up to a television screen. One of the ways to input a program was using a tape data audio input. The machine would read sounds, then run the program on the screen. Similar to a fax or modem or a latter-day Depeche Mode album, data is transmitted through sound. So CB wrote a program and converted it to the modulated audio tones. These were then pressed onto the B side of a 45 with the instructions to record the sounds of the record to a tape and then play that tape into the CPU. The program that would be run was essentially a primitive music video for the A side of the 45 RPM. The laborious process, which was difficult to run, was still a stroke of brilliance, producing one of the first technology-enhanced interactive music discs. The single was called Camouflage. The B-side contained a couple programs. The first was a simple game called Flying Train, which was most notable for the stick figure getting flung from the exploding choo-choo upon player failure. More notable was the second program, that when synced up with the A-side would display the lyrics and basic 8-bit graphics in time with the music. Surely mind-blowing for the pre-MTV set. I remember we had a VIC-20, and then we, had a, we moved up to a Commodore 64. Really? I had those tape decks for data to play games with. Do
1: you remember actually putting them into the computer? Did you just plug them in?
0: We had a tape deck that was for the Commodore 64, mm-hmm. so it plugged into the computer, and you would then just use any regular tape.
1: What, hap- what happened to those computers? Do you still have them? Probably.
0: Anybody want a Commodore 64?
1: We have merch. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've mentioned Turntable's capability of reading computer programs before in the FlexiDisc episode, where tech magazines would include different applications embedded in tear-out flexies stuck between pages. However, there were plenty of musicians who attempted to make use of the burgeoning technology. The earliest example we found was by Japanese synth master Isseo Tomito, who put... Co- Ryan, yeah. Ryan. Yeah. I think it's tomato. <laughs> You say tomato, I say tomato. <laughs> tomato put coded messages embedded in sound effects on his 1979 album, Bermuda Triangle. The electrical signal from side A of the LP could be processed through a tarball system computer. message would then be revealed on the screen. This is the Bermuda Triangle over. Slow down. Target 50 miles off South Florida. A giant pyramid at Ocean Bottom. And then side B warned. This is the Bermuda Triangle over. Look out. The cylindrical object, just like the one exploded over Siberia and crashed into Tung Uska in 1908, has just come into the solar system.
0: Do you remember the episode that we did with that about the guy, that piggy guy who would etch things in the dead wax. Mm-hmm. These seem like things that, I mean, they're way too long, but things that could be etched into those seems like the same kind of messages.
1: Uh, a lot of bands would put them after the lock groove, you know, the end groove. Yeah, you'd have to physically put up and put the needle on the on the inside. So you you could go. We'll talk about one later, but that people, these programs are still being found because people just get to the end of the record and not know if they actually physically put it onto the to the next track that there was this stuff.
0: That's really cool.
1: There's probably more of these out there that people just haven't found. And now some of the stuff like is kind of hidden. Like the tomato stuff is actually kind of put into the song. So the song will kind of go and then you'll just hear these kind of digital sounds and it will move right on to the song. So you actually had to get it right there and record just that part perfectly put that in, and then it would work.
0: I wonder if there's a list of those.
1: So a lot of the information I found, and the most comprehensive list I've found of this is on a website, www.kempa.com, which doesn't look like it's been active in the last decade or so. He's listed a lot of these records that have this sort of stuff, and we'll talk about a few more here. Most vinyl containing data simply displayed basic text information like in a Hawkwind spinoff band, Inner City Unit, who had a program that contained a comprehensive band bio, discography, and upcoming tour schedule. Some programs were a bit more involved. Ex-Buzzcock Pete Shelley released a record called XL1, with the final track, Spectrum Code. The kids were to record the blips and boops to a tape and then run the program while the rest of the vinyl played. If successful, which was rarely they were treated to some very basic but colorful graphics and lyrics that were almost displayed in time with the songs. Some were much simpler and to the point, like a code in Scottish band Urasai Hatsura's album, Everybody Loves Raymond. I mean, everybody loves (laughs) Urasai Hatsura. (laughs) (laughs) Which displayed the unadorned text message, Hail
0: Satan, lick
1: his cloven hoof.
0: Take that, Judas Priest. Beyond basic info and primitive video, some bands also gamified their music in this cutting-edge medium. English rockabilly revivalist Shaken Stevens had a vinyl release that contained the data audio for a game called The Shaky Game, where the user tried to drive his hot rod to the center of a maze while avoiding bats, like if Atari did a Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas game. Every time a bat took down your vehicle, a heavily pixelated Shaken Stevens head appeared to mock you by saying, Oh, dear, a bat bitcha. The Stranglers released a taped version of their album, Oral Statue. A U R A L.
1: Ooh, thank you for clearing that up.
0: Yep. Earlier in the show, we mentioned some things. <laughs> Brezhnev would have been okay with this.
1: This is a pair of socks type situation, not a single sock.
0: Yep. That had audio pulses for the -the band-on-the-run text adventure game Oral Quest, written by the band's keyboardist. The most famous of these early band computer games was the Thompson Twins adventure game, which came in both standard vinyl and flexi-disc form, on Spectrum and Commodore, so both sides of the pond could equally become bored and angered at the program. The game finds you leading the well-coffed New Wavers through beaches, forests, and caves in search of ingredients for a potion to poison Duran Duran? No. That was being crafted by the doctor from their single, Dr. Doctor. Unfortunately, players had to enter the exact correct term to move on, and most just got very frustrated with the slow gameplay and spelling requirements. Unfortunately, the examples of this multimedia were few and far between. Major bands didn't embrace the esoteric and highly nerdy multimedia form. Still, it's a shame to think about what could have been. An Annie Linux album? Playing a game of Roxy Music's Leisure Suit Fairy? Connecting via a Depeche modem? Or even just clearing the Johnny Cash and firing up the ZZ operating System? Still, this irrelevant concept hasn't completely died. Of course, in the 90s, labels released CD-ROMs containing all sorts of extraneous data to help spur the potential listener to spend $17.99 rather than hitting Napster. How'd that work out, I wonder? And people are still finding messages in old records. For example, one intrepid enthusiast found a secret Commodore 64 program hidden in the run-out groove of the album Electric Eye by 80s Christian rockers' prodigal. The program was two simple text messages, one from Jesus and one from Einstein. Radiohead included a Spectrum message on a mixtape that was included with the special edition of OK Computer. The simplistic flashing text program was totally worth the mortgage you have to take out to pay for the deluxe collector's edition. And recently, a video went viral of a guy booting MS-DOS from a 10-inch played on his turntable, which blew through all sorts of pointless hierarchies.
1: But back to Seavey. His frustration at the callous treatment at the hands of the music industry fueled his creativity. In 1984, he gamified this passionate hatred when he published a cassette for the Spectrum called The Biz. Along with several singles, the tape contained a text-based game where the player created a band and had to act as a manager to help the band achieve worldwide success and star power in the treacherous world of the music industry. Starting with no money, talent, or skill, points were earned by setting up gigs, making fans, purchasing instruments, scheduling practices, paying attention to charts, making videos, and going to the studio to record albums. Successful bands would work their way up from YMCA dances to making John Peel sessions. There are even penalties for bands that got too involved with drugs or didn't have proper insurance. Lack of insurance was pretty much the downfall of the Traveling Wilburys, if my recollection serves. Anyway, we'll put a link on the website for anyone who has several hours to kill in the name of rock stardom, as this game and many other games we mentioned have... Been run through emulators so you can actually play them online. One final aspect of the Spectrum cassette was a weirdo audio interview with the Freshie's biggest fan, a character created by CV who wore a giant Max Fleischer-esque papier-mâché head named Frank Sidebottom. Frank would slowly make appearances at the Freshie shows, with weird cover songs, surreal comic stylings, and a puppet show that involved a mini-doppelganger named Little Frank. Soon, Frank was the only reason people would come to the shows, and eventually he would become one of the most iconic figures in England, appearing at children's television shows and starting a football team, the Timberley Big Shorts FC. Chris Seavey was finally granted his much-desired fame, but not at all in the way he imagined. No music business computer program could have possibly generated that outcome.
0: I've spent a lot of time looking at the grooves on records. Mostly so I could set the needle down on a specific track or to get an idea of how long a song might be compared with the rest of the songs on that side so that the mixtape would end perfectly. And I've probably seen the same grooves of some of my records a hundred times, spread out over 30 years of collecting, and those are still pretty much the only two things I can tell by looking at those grooves. You know what that means? Technically, it means I don't have vinyl vision. Vinyl vision is the ability to see groove patterns in vinyl recordings and correctly identify musical recordings without the benefit of identifying labels. As of now, there's only been one person who's been proven to have that ability. Dr. Arthur Lincoln. The ability was shown to America in 1981 when Lincoln appeared on the show That's Incredible. In front of trusted skeptic and American ninja warrior James Randy. the good doctor correctly identified 20 records out of 20. Randy and his team created the test for Lincoln, and he didn't miss a beat. The most entertaining part of the broadcast is watching Lincoln take off his Mr. Magoo glasses to study the records. His eyesight didn't seem all that reliable to begin with, how is this going to work? Lintgen was
1: even able to tell, for one record, the nationality of the coral group. James Randi had long offered to give anyone who could prove to him that they had paranormal abilities a million dollars. In 1981, it was only ten thousand, but Lintgen was not rewarded for his gift. The old skinflint refused to give him money once the curtain was pulled back and America was shown the fraud. Well, not really. Littgen was very open about his ability to do this being abnormal rather than paranormal. He was able to tell by the grooves whether the music was quieter or louder in parts, and when certain patterns repeated in certain ways, he was able to use his extensive knowledge to narrow the pieces down to specific composers and works. He was able to recognize that the chorus in one selection was German because the vinyl had a feature around the edge that was used by one label only and that label produced German recordings of classical music. It was all deduction, and it was brilliant. People wanted it to be more than that, though. They wanted it to be magic. On one occasion, Lintgen was asked to identify a record from across the room, and without even looking up, he named it. This story is what probably caused the most confusion about his alleged powers. When asked how he did it, he said that it was an incredibly common piece and the one that he'd been asked to identify more often than any others. It was just an educated guess.
0: Leipkin was limited in what he was able to identify, but that certainly doesn't take away from the skill he has. He's an expert on classical music, and started his infatuation with that when he was very young. He can't recognize grooves on records made before a specific year, because it was only after that recordings were made at a much higher level of production and mastering what i appreciate most about him his memory and reason are what made his turn at fame die away quickly a la the pet rock dr lincoln was a big deal for a little while making the tv rounds with stories written about him nationwide but when people were finally convinced of what he'd been telling them the whole time that he doesn't have magic powers their attention moved on to something more trivial. Lincoln is still around, writing classical album reviews for The Absolute Sound. From all I've read about him, he seems like a pretty swell fella.
1: And you know, when you read about him, they always tell the same stories about how when James Randi did his little experiment, there was these control records, like a spoken word record that was like how to do magic. And he, he knew that right away. Oh, that's a... That's a spoken word or a single voice. And then the other one was they gave him an Alice Cooper record. And he just said it was disorganized, gibberish, or something like that. I had a, a friend, and he, he has this specific ability uh, where he could take <laughs> any of the uh, animal crackers from the little train car animal crackers, and he could be blindfolded. he put it in his mouth, feel around it. He could tell you what animal it was.
0: Would he need to be blindfolded?
1: Yeah, you got to be a bomb folder. That's how we knew it was a good experiment. The Linjin thing is crazy. I mean, you just look at like, if you think about the record groove as a, like a wave file, you know, like an audio file on your computer. And instead of being easy to identify on a flat surface, it's on a round surface and that you have to read grooves rather than just see it right in front of you. That ability is insane to me.
0: Yeah, he's just incredibly bright and he has a really good memory for the library of classical works and conductors because he can usually name conductors from them too on the records he knows and it's really funny doing the research on this in forums like reddit when it comes up and it's it's come up as one of those today i learned Mm -hmm. maybe four or five times and in almost every one of those there'll be a comment that anybody who is really into music can do it and no no they can't that's ridiculous
1: no i don't think anybody has been able to do it again Gary S. Paxton is never mentioned in the same breath as other famously eccentric 60s producers like Phil Spector, Shadow Morton, or Joe Meek. Perhaps it's because his two biggest songs were definitely novelties, or maybe it's because he is known to anger major record companies at every turn, or perhaps it's because he came out of the 60s as a player in the Christian contemporary music scene. But he's written 2,000 songs, recorded 600 of them, and had at least 150 hits across all different charts, rock and roll, country, R&B, and gospel. But whatever the reason, the undeniable, brilliant, and wild rock and roll figure gets swept under the rug of musical history. His story has it all, though. Corrupt labels, fake bands, elephant feces, failed assassinations, affairs with Tammy Faye Baker, and, most importantly, redemption.
0: Like I'd rather have an affair with Jim Baker.
1: <laughs> be easy to do. Apparently, he was doing that fairly often.
0: let get in line.
1: Paxton experienced a more harrowing childhood than most people can imagine, with the poor kid experiencing extreme poverty, adoption, abuse, spinal meningitis, and a strict non-musical religious household. The turmoil led him to fully embrace the rock lifestyle, and as soon as he could drop out and grab a guitar, he started playing in bands. Going through all sorts of rockabilly variations, he finally would link up with an up-and-coming country singer named Buck Owens, and he finally scored a mini-hit, It Was I, in 1959 with the singing duo Skip and Flip. They immediately followed up that song with a do-up single called Cherry Pie, which landed them a spot on the tour with DJ Alan Freed, and had them play with black artists like James Brown, Jackie Wilson, Chuck Berry, and the Coasters. Gary used this time on tour to soak up as much information about the business and recording studios as he possibly could. In the meantime, he was managing a young wife in Tucson, a fiance in Seattle, and a girlfriend in Oregon. He left a pair of boots and a guitar at each happy home, but decided it was probably best to cut ties with all his monogamous trios and head to Los Angeles by himself.
0: Unsaddled in L.A., Paxton completely invested himself into music and drugs and more drugs. He paired up with another eccentric producer, Kim Fowley, and the two produced a novelty hit called Alley Oop," in a random drunken recording session. Alley-oop.
2: He's the toughest man that is alive. Alley-oop. Wearing clothes from a wildcat's hide. Alley-oop. He's the king of the jungle jive. Look at that caveman go! Oh, oh. He rides through the jungle, tearing limbs off of trees. Alley-oop. Alley-oop.
0: They decided to release it under the name of a non-existent band called the Hollywood Argyles. When various clubs would call him to get the band to play live, he'd just find a local band and convince them to call themselves the Hollywood Argyles and play that song. Some nights, up to three of these sub-leased bands would be playing at various locales across the nation. While Paxton didn't collect the pittance for performing, it ensured the song continued to blow up the charts. Shortly after, he got an idea for a song when an unknown singer did a spot-on impression of Boris Karloff during a live show. He quickly wrote in an eight-hour session perhaps the greatest novelty song of all time, The Monster Mash. No companies wanted to release it, so he just founded a record label and distributed the record himself. It was a graveyard smash, selling 10 million copies. Paxton produced hundreds of singles a year in the early 60s and was constantly starting and killing and merging record labels. All the while, he earned a reputation for his crazed approach to the music industry, style over substance, promotion over pride. Phil Spector was said to be slightly afraid of him. Brian Wilson was a big admirer. So clearly... The lunatics were running the asylum. On one famous occasion, a radio station wouldn't play his song, Elephant Game, Part One, by Renfro and Jackson because it sounded too black.
2: Okay then, Jackson, why is it dangerous to walk through the jungle between the hours of two and four in the afternoon? Now, Renfro, you know I ain't never been no further than East L.A. Well, that's when elephant... By lot of trees. <laughs> you big it up too, Jackson? Renfro, they are silly. But well, that's what makes them funny, Jackson. Here's some old to answer. Okay. Why do elephants travel in herds? I don't know. So they can get their tennis shoes wholesale.
0: <laughs> Renfro, you is ignorant. He took slight umbrage at this rejection and decided to show his displeasure by hosting a parade outside the radio station down Hollywood Boulevard complete with bands, cheerleaders, and an elephant pulling a Volkswagen. Paxton was arrested when the elephant went crazy and started defecating profusely. Is the a crime? Explosive elephant diarrhea is the worst. Trust me. Always take truth, not dare. Chad Atkins,
1: possibly attracted to the Elephant Stench, soon sought out Paxton and convinced him to move to Nashville. He did shortly try out Music City, but soon found himself back in California where he was instrumental in bridging the rock and country sound at his Bakersfield Nashville West studio, which we discussed as ground zero for the cosmic country scene. He did meander back to Nashville in 1970, and within weeks he'd written... Woman-Sensuous Woman, which was a million-seller for Don Gibson, Ray Charles, and Mark Chestnut. Woman. Ooh, sensuous woman.
2: You control the world I live in
1: He continued a drug-addled rampage of the country music scene as a total mess, but also a very prominent producer and writer. Eventually, after countless personal tragedies, he walked into a church completely stoned and walked out with the decision that the Holy Spirit was the only thing to listen to. From that moment on, he focused on gospel and contemporary Christian music and never touched booze or drugs. He proved to be a hit machine for the Lord as well. He'd win a Grammy for his bizarro Christian folk gospel rocker album, The Astonishing, Outrageous, Amazing, Incredible, Unbelievable, Different World of Garius Paxton the cover of which is him with a 15-gallon hat and a 15-gallon beard popping out of a manhole cover. He was too hippie for most conservative Christian radio stations, but his songs were popular to cover, and eventually he broke through to the masses of Jesus Freaksters. (laughs) ¶¶ he died. Well, for a minute. So the story basically goes that Vern Gosden, from the country singing duo that worked with Gene Clark, the Gosden brothers, set a hit out for Gary S. after a recording contract went awry. The two assassins feigned car trouble, but the Lord had told Gary that there was something wrong, so he armed himself before going out to perform his work of charity. The men eventually attacked the producer, striking and choking him while he screamed, In the name of Jesus, you cannot kill me. One of the assailants ended up shooting him in the hand, creating his own personal stigmata, but Paxton managed to wrest away the gun and unload into him. Then Paxton tried to crawl away from the melee, but he was shot twice more in the back before some neighbors managed to intervene. Gary S. Paxton died twice on the operating table, but claims he was sent back to finish his mission on Earth. He soon ran into more troubles with business partners embezzling from him and a persistent rumor that he had had an affair with Tammy Faye Baker, though Paxton maintains he was in no way out of the way rolling in the hay to play with Tammy Faye on any day. God only knows. In the 90s, Paxton took his legendary beard, wife number four, and a bout of hepatitis C to Branson, Missouri, where he steadily put out music and occasionally performed as a mass singer called Grandfather Rock. He died in 2016 to sadly little fanfare, but rock and roll lost one of its true innovators and weirdos. Novelty has never been so novel since.
0: If you're like me, you've stayed up late watching your favorite movie or show and realized how better of an actor you were than the jokers on the screen that were the so-called professionals. Al Pacino, you bozo, I can hoo just as well. <laughs> if only you had an opportunity to showcase your dramatic chops. Well, a strange series of novelty records allowed listeners in the 50s and 60s to live out their fantasies. The series of albums were called "Co-Star: the record acting game, and had the catch line, You, act scenes opposite your favorite star. Essentially, the records would take some of the most prominent actors of the era and several not-prominent actors and have them record lines from a two-person scene for plays and movies. The lines that would be read by their opposite co-star were left unrecorded with the idea that the listener at home would use an included script to act with the star. You can show the world, or at least the living room, who the real star was. The record series was published by the Mafia-run label Roulette Records, and there were at least 19 records published in the series with such celebrities as Basil Rathbone, my favorite Sherlock, Cesar Romero, my favorite Joker, Arlene Dahl, I don't know who that is, (laughs) Fernando Lamas, Don Amici, Go Badgers, and Tallulah Bankhead. And for good measure... Roulette added a few of their singing stars who were not actors to the series as well, namely Jimmy Rogers and Pearl Bailey. The concept seemed like a lot of fun. So, Ryan and I are going to take a stab at it. Here are two clips of us acting with Vincent Price. Ryan will be taking on the scene from the Governor's son playing Annie, the Lady of Ill Repute. And then I dive into a scene from Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest. I will play Algernon to Mr. Vincent Price's Jack.
6: The setting for this scene is a cheap southern hotel. You, Anne, are what polite society calls a lady of ill repute. You are very beautiful, however, and have attracted the attention of Logan, son of the governor of the state. Logan, played by Vincent Price... Opens the scene as he pounds on the door of your room. And. Annie. Annie, you can open up this door.
1: Logan, please go away. You don't want me and I don't want you.
6: I on, open up this door. No. Well, in that case... My father's an important man in this community. If you don't respect my word, the least you could do is respect my father's. What he says goes around here. And the sooner you learn that, the better.
1: Look what you've done. I'll have it fixed. And who will pay
6: for it? Your father, as usual? Yeah, we'll take it out of the state budget. Once he used to be in the governor's son, if you can't enjoy some of the privileges. Aren't you a little old to be dragging on your father's coattails? Why don't you do something on your own for a change? I am. I'm learning to be the next governor of the state. When my daddy steps down, I'll step up. It's all been laid out very carefully.
1: Oh, yeah. Suppose they found out you had been running after me. Do you suppose they'll still want you in the governor's mansion? Do you think the Lollard name is big enough to cover up you've been sleeping with, uh... Don't
6: say that. I never liked the word.
1: Well, what would your voters think?
6: They'd be proud of me for having such exquisite taste in women. But Ann, honey, you forget I haven't had the pleasure.
1: Yeah. Keep your hands off me.
6: Oh, now, honey. I said keep your hands off. Well, little hellcat, aren't you? (laughs) Let's see how sharp those claws really are. I'll show you how sharp they are. Stay away. Very well, Annie. Our next scene is from Oscar Wilde's witty comedy, The Importance of Being Earnest. It is set in Victorian England and involves two very stylish young men. Mr. Price plays one of the young gentlemen, Jack, you play the other, Algernon. While the most important subject of your conversation should be your respective love interests, a plate of muffins seems to be of greater concern to both of you, especially you, who continue eating throughout the scene. Jack speaks first. I wanted to be engaged to Gwendolyn, that is all. I love her. Well, I... Um, I wanted, simply want to get myself, I adore her. There is certainly no chance of your marrying Miss Cardew.
0: I don't think it's much likely a jack of you and Miss Fairfax being united.
6: Well, that is none of your business.
0: If it was my business, I wouldn't talk about it. Ah! Folger, I'm merely <clears throat> How you
6: can sit there calmly eating muffins when we are in this horrible trouble I can't make out. You seem to me to be perfectly heartless.
0: M- well, I can't eat muffins in an agitated manner the butter would probably get in my cuffs I should always eat muffins calmly it's the only way to eat them
6: I say it is perfectly heartless you're eating muffins at all under the circumstances
0: when I'm in trouble eating is the only thing that consoles me Indeed, when I'm in really great trouble as anybody who knows me, intimately will tell you I refuse everything except food and drink. At the present moment, I'm eating muffins because I'm unhappy. Besides, I'm particularly fond of muffins. Can I have another?
6: Well, that is no reason why you should eat them all in that greedy way. You might leave some for me.
0: Well, have that, have that cake over there.
6: Good heavens, I suppose a man may eat his own muffins in his own garden.
0: But you... You just said it was perfectly heartless.
6: I said it was perfectly heartless of you under the circumstances. That is a very different thing. But but muffins are the same. Algie, I wish to goodness you would go.
1: All right, so that concludes our uh, Christmas, non-Christmas Christmas episode, whatever you want to call it. You want to play some songs?
0: Yeah, I think I do.
1: I'm going to start us off today and this is Christmas in Heaven by Billy Ward and his dominoes.
2: Christmas. Christmas
1: Was Christmas in Heaven by Billy Ward and his Dominoes. Uh, it was originally released in 1953 on a uh, shellac 78 on the famous King Records. I have it on a um, Sunday's reissue called Merry Christmas from King Records that came out just last year, 2019, that our friends at Kindercord Vinyl pressed up. It's a really, really pretty fun record. And it just uh, compiles a bunch of the... Uh, great King Records Christmas songs. Billy Ward was kind of a cool guy. He was in the military, and then he was one of the first African Americans to study at Juilliard. He was a piano player. He signed with King Records, actually the subsidiary federal, and then his career took off when he released 60-Minute Man, which is a great song. Uh, I think we've talked about it before sometime in the show. Uh, It was a 1951 song. And it really can make a pretty good case for being one of the first, if not the first, rock and roll song. Because it had a lot of crossover appeal and it had a real risque subject matter. So um, Billy Ward had a bunch of... He was the piano player and he had a bunch of guys named the Dominoes who would sing. And he had two really important uh, members of his band, the Dominoes. They were Clyde McFather and then Jackie Wilson. In fact, Jackie Wilson you might have guessed, is the singer on this track. Billy Ward was known for being pretty hard to work with. He was a strict disciplinarian, and he would look for any reason to fine his bandmates for infractions, like coming late to rehearsals or wearing unshined shoes. Gotta shine those shoes. Get your shine box. <laughs> so, anyways... um really great song just one of those classic christmas songs that you know we just don't hear very much great r&b song
0: but just one of my favorites and i thought i'd play it for you all okay my first song is going to be by the harlem children's chorus and it is called black christmas
4: Bitter days, December nights, city haze, apartment lights, in the ghetto, Ghetto. that's Christmas, in the night.
0: That was the Harlem Children's Chorus with Black Christmas. I have that on a single from 1969 on Commonwealth United Records. It also appeared on their album Christmas Time with the Harlem Children's Chorus, which I would very much like to get. If you haven't heard it before, hopefully you you enjoyed it. And if you did, you can find it also on Bandcamp.com for Strut Records because they put out a release in 2009 called In the Christmas Groove and it included that song on there and you can just download that whole thing on Bandcamp for not very much money at all. The Harlem Children's Chorus is not to be confused with the Harlem Community Choir and that's the choir that backed up Yoko and John on Happy Christmas War is Over. There isn't a whole lot of information about the Harlem Children's Chorus. So there's sort of a review and, well, the closest thing from a newspaper out of Washington, Pennsylvania. And it says, aimed at black Americans is Christmas time with the Harlem Children's Chorus on Commonwealth United Records. There are several good solo voices in this group, and the best tracks are those using a soloist and the chorus as backup, like Black Christmas. So I nailed that. (laughs) And do you hear what I hear? Sometimes, when the group sings in unison like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, excitement probably takes over and the tone goes flat. That last part is a little rude. (laughs) But anyway, the song is Black Christmas. Uh, hopefully everybody enjoyed that out there, and again, it's pretty easy to get a copy if you go to Strut's Bandcamp page. Strut, by the way, is a really cool label. They originally were were around in like 99 to 2003 and then shut down, it's a UK label, and then they came back right around like 2007, 2008. So this release in 2009 for them was fairly early on, and they have just been going like crazy since they've got a ton of really great reissues of african albums and a lot of obviously a lot of soul and r&b and funk it's it's a great label you should all go get something for of theirs they're very easy to find great stuff the next song i'm going to play is called santa claus and it is by the fuzz tones that was the fuzz tones with their song santa claus or their version of a song santa claus that i think was originally or at least the first version i know of is the sonics Mm -hmm. probably not their original song but the sonics and this i have on a compilation put out on cleopatra records called psych out christmas it's a decent collection there's a lot of filler sorry for all you bands that are on there there's a lot of great stuff, too. I'm not going to kind of say what which is which. So if you're listening, the one that you band. did is really good. <laughs> the Fuzz Tones, they're a garage rock revival-type band formed like around 1980 in New York. Um, much bigger in New York and Europe than anywhere else in the in the U.S. for sure. They're probably most famous, at least to us here, For being Screamin' Jay Hawkins' backing band in 1984 on a live 12-inch EP that was released. And we talked about that in a previous episode, too. I don't know when they recorded this song, if it was in 2013 along with this compilation, or if it was at a different time. There's no information about that in the record liner notes. Well, there are no liner notes. It's been difficult to find info about when they did that, but who cares? It's a fun song. Absolutely.
1: All right, and I got another fun song to finish us off for songs. This is Groovy Christmas and New Year by P.B. Dynamite. let It was Groovy Christmas and New Year's by Hojas Sorowanko, a.k.a. PP Dynamite. And this is a single I borrowed from Joe that was released uh, on Voodoo, uh, reissued I should say, on Voodoo Funk Records Academy LPs um, in 2011. But it's actually a, a song from a band in Ghana in the 70s. So this is just one of the most infectious, fun Christmas songs uh, that I've ever heard. And I know Joe sent it over to me and we really wanted to uh, play this song. He found it after he was exploring Zamrock and he was looking to see if they had any sort of Christmas songs. And he managed to find this. It came from Ghana somewhere in the 70s and it was a production by Kwado Dunku, who uh, was pretty big producer in Ghana at that time, and he was the driving force behind Aguru Records, who are most famous for the Uhuru dance band. So really don't know a lot about it. It is fun, and you just can't get it out of your head, and I just want to hear it all year long. I don't care if it's Christmas or not. I'm going to play it. I'm going to play it on Valentine's Day. I'm going to play it on the 4th of July. I'm going to play it... (laughs) I'm going to play it all year long. All right. Want to finish up some trivia?
0: Yeah, let's try that again.
1: Remember, I have the audio trivia. It's eight songs. It has to do with the artist. And I want you to name the artist, the song, um, and most importantly, I want you to find the theme. So here we go. Track one.
2: and and it always this way, where is riddle, where is bliss, merry Christmas, merry, merry, merry,
1: track two, track three, here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane
3: around when the times we been out when it's Christmas born Track four. On
2: On you I'm glorious Lord For
1: On your knees. Track five.
2: Come down to the manger See the little metal- In swaddling the of
1: peace. Track six.
4: I'll be home for Christmas. And you track seven. The very merriest of Christmases and the happiest of new years. And thank you so very much for letting us spend this Christmas with you.
1: Track eight
2: bells chime wherever we
1: roam.
4: So try Noel, finish,
1: not gone. to you. All right, Joe, what you got?
0: Track one, The Ramones, I Don't Want to Fight Tonight.
1: Merry Christmas, I Don't Want to Fight Tonight, very good.
0: Track two, I not I don't know who this is. I it sounds like in the background they're saying T-Rex, but I don't know I don't know who this is.
1: This is T-Rex with the song called Christmas Bop. Yep. He's the only asshole behind Frosty Snowman and Rudolph the Reindor, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer who will write himself into his own Christmas song.
0: The track three, Bob Dylan, Here Comes Santa Claus. That is correct. Track four Tiny Tim, and I think it's Oh Holy Night.
1: It is. Just a glorious vocal performance.
0: He's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Track 5, The Band, Uh huh. Christmas Must Be Tonight. That's right. Good job. I feel, I, I feel like I'm doing if you think that I'm just really good at this trivia or naming these songs, I have been making lots of Christmas mixes for the kids. <laughs> now, track 6, I think it's Zoe Deschanel. With I'll Be Home for Christmas, but I'm not sh- positive on
1: that. No, it's actually Scarlett Johansson. Oh, okay. But right song, I'll Be Home for Christmas. She did a duet with uh, Dead Deed Martin somehow,
0: and it got released. So, I don't know. She did an album of Tom Waits covers, too. Yeah, she did. Track seven, I don't know. My guess was the Everly Brothers, but I have no idea who that is.
1: That's Phil Spector's, uh Silent Night that he plays at the end of his record, his famous Christmas record.
0: Track eight Sammy Davis Jr. with Merry Christmas to You.
1: Yep, it's Sammy Davis Jr. It's called Christmas Time All Over the World.
0: Oh, the song, I got the song wrong. Yeah, here, I'll give you
1: points. You got the artist. Cool. So we got eight artists the Ramones, T Rex, Bob Dylan, Tiny Tim, the band Scarlett Johansson, Phil Spector, and Sammy Davis Jr. Any guesses on the theme?
0: My first guess was that these are all people who have been in movies, played pretty prominent roles in movies, I believe. Maybe not Phil Spector, though.
1: Nope, that's wrong.
0: You said the number eight is important.
1: Yes, the number eight. I could listen to them one per night.
0: They are all Jewish.
1: That's right. These are all Christmas songs by artists who uh, have Jewish heritage or converted to Judaism. Very good.
0: Wow. Thank you for that last hint about eight nights. <laughs> That's a great quiz. Thank you. Yeah, really yeah. Job. So
1: the Ramones are Ramones, T-Rex, and Bob Dylan, Tiny Tim. The band Robbie Robertson is. Uh, I didn't know Scarlett Johansson is, but apparently she is. There's a surprising amount of Christmas songs who are written by Jewish um. Jewish people, White Christmas, of course, by Irvin Berlin. The Christmas song, "Holly Jolly Christmas." It's the most wonderful time of the world. Uh, most wonderful time of the year. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Rocking around the Christmas tree. Rudolph, Santa Baby, Silver Bells. You you name it. Anyways, good work.
0: Well, that's the wrap up of the show. We do have some people to thank. First, I just want to mention a podcast that is also on Pantheon, our podcasting network, who we are incredibly grateful to for allowing us to be on here with a lot of great other podcasts, one of which is called Song Facts, and they have a new Holiday Songs special podcast out, and they allowed us to be on for about three minutes for that episode, Corey from Song Facts. Um, invited some of the other Pantheon podcasters to record something short about their favorite song. So we sent something in about a song that we played on one of our previous holiday shows, Welcome Christmas by Red Red Meat. Uh, if you have a chance to take a listen to it, there's a lot of good stuff on that in that episode, as there is on, on other podcasts, almost every podcast, if not every podcast, on Pantheon. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: It was a lot of fun and it was, it's kind of fun to listen to, you know, some of the other favorite, uh, holiday songs, some I knew, some I didn't, but yeah, thanks to Corey for letting us on and please go check that out. Song facts podcast or on the uh, main Pantheon feed, which has all the different podcasts, Uh, a few people who reached out. We just want to say hi to, uh, Dan wrote us a really nice email, um, and told me some great stories about, um, his uh his experience with some of the Paisley Underground bands, so I really enjoyed that. He he and his sister uh, hanging out with the Bangles and stuff like that. Bruno wrote an email on, or I think he sent a message on Instagram saying he enjoyed the show. So I wanted to say hi and thank you for that.
0: We also got a message from Nick who liked the Kevin Coyne episode. Hopefully, he liked others, but he pointed that one out and he like. A lot of people recognize that Kevin Coyne just did not get enough credit for all that he did with music and what a tremendous career he had. And Nick also presented an idea to us about something else we can cover, and it seems like a pretty great one. We're not going to tell you. We're going to keep it close to the vest. And hopefully one day soon we'll have an episode and then we'll let Nick know that it's because of him.
1: Absolutely. And Joe, uh, did you notice how um, good my acting was with Vincent Price a few minutes ago?
0: No, which one? That I don't think that's the one you played for me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh... <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, of course. You are a brilliant actor. I know,
1: Well, besides that, there's another reason I sounded so good, and that is because Pantheon has kind of struck a deal with... AKG uh, products by Harman, and they sent over the Lyra USB microphone, um, and so that was recorded with this new microphone that we got to kind of work through on the podcast, and it's a it's it's awesome. I love it. It's a it's a great USB microphone specifically made for podcasting, and really appreciate them sharing these products so we can kind of test them out. And it's kind of the first time we've ever had somebody send something to the podcast, so. Appreciate that. It came in this this great kit that had um, some high-quality headphones and this uh, podcasting mic. So if you're thinking about doing a podcast about music history and the offbeat parts of music history on the vinyl record, you should not do it because you'll probably do it a little better than us. But if you want to do a podcast on something else, uh, check out the AKG products, especially the Lyra podcasting mic. Yeah, we want to thank them so much for
0: supporting the Highway Hi-Fi. And check us out on social media. We have a Twitter account. I think we still have that. We yeah. have an Instagram account. Uh, on both of those, our handle is Highway Pod. Find us on Facebook. We have a page there. We have an email address. You can send us messages, whatever you want, as long as it's in email format. <laughs> and the email address for that is Podcast. At gmail.com.
1: And if you want to get us a, if you want to get Joe and I a Christmas present, how about a review? We could really use um, a review on any of the podcast catcher raking systems or just tell a friend who might enjoy us or like us on social media and share the good word. Tell one person. Tell one person who in your life who you know loves puppet records.
0: I don't want all of you to tell the same one person.
1: <laughs> Please spend some spend some money on uh, music. I know this is probably going to come out just a few days before Christmas, but uh, you know, vinyl is the gift that keeps on giving. If you get really good at it, you can even tell what the vinyl is without having to see the cover or the label. You could just read the grooves, and then you'll know if you gave a good present or not. And as this ends our fourth holiday uh, special, we do want to say thank you to, for listening. It's kind of unbelievable we've been doing this for four um, consecutive Decembers. It's
0: it's the quattro.
1: Yes, yes. But uh, we really enjoy doing it and it makes it all the better that you guys are out there listening and hopefully learning some stuff and enjoying it. But we we appreciate you. So we will see you next time.
2: Hey, In the name of Jesus, you cannot kill me.
5: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.